Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Raja Rajamanar is the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer of MasterCard and the President of its healthcare division. In the past, Raja has held management roles at multiple Fortune 500 companies, including Unilever, Citigroup, Anthem, and most recently MasterCard, where he's been for the past seven years. Raja has also been named as one of the top five world's most influential CMOs by Forbes, a member of the Campaign Power 100, one of Business Insider's 25 most innovative CMOs in the world, a top branding power player by Billboard, a member of the CMO Club, and of course, one of Provoke Media's Influence 100. Recently, Raja has been an incredible thought leader on the obligations that brands have to do the right thing during COVID. He's specifically been outspoken for saying, now is not the time to sell, but to serve. Very wise words from a very wise man. In this conversation, Raja delves further into this concept and also discusses the evolution of MasterCard's priceless campaign the magic of comms-led creative, and the fascinating world of sonic branding. Now, for your listening pleasure, here is MasterCard CMO Raja Rajamanar in conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer. We have the honor of speaking with Raja Rajamanar, the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at MasterCard, um, who has recently been honored as one of the top 100 communications professionals by Provoke Media, in addition to the many, many accolades he has accumulated throughout his career, just to pick one of which is being named one of the top five CMOs, according to Forbes. Um, Raja, welcome. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate having me on this uh, event. Well, we're very much looking forward to hearing your your insights and your advice for the industry. Um, And one of the things that I was hoping we could start out with is related to sort of the evolving marketing mix. Um, and a comment that you were quoted as saying last year at Cannes, obviously we didn't have Cannes this year, last year you were quoted as saying that advertising as we know it is dead. Um, and you know there are a lot of people who sort of conflate marketing and advertising, right? And so as if they're the same thing. And you, chief marketing officer, um, are saying that advertising as we know it is dead. So how do you distinguish between those things or, or you know, what, what does that mean um, from, in your own words? See, marketing is not obviously only about advertising, right? Advertising is just one solid pillar within marketing, but there are so many other elements of marketing. Now, when I say that advertising, as we know, is dead, I mean it. So if you look at it from the perspective of a consumer, say I'm a consumer myself, and I'm watching something on YouTube, for example, Every three minutes, every five minutes, there is an interruption. It is so annoying that I stopped watching it, right? And there are people who say, I'm actually willing to pay money to just keep these advertisements out. So people are, they hate ads because ads are proving to be an interruption to the experience of people, number one. Number two, There are 5,000 commercial messages. There are different estimates, but anywhere between 3,000 and 5,000 commercial messages that are bombarded, consumers are bombarded by this every single day, which is humanly impossible to process them. Plus, because of the uh, fragmentation of the various screens and so many attractions for consumers, 
their span of attention is actually coming down. So today their span of attention is less than eight seconds. Now put all these three together. You got a low span of attention, which means narrow window, through which 5,000 ads are trying to get through and connect with the consumer. In a context where the consumer says, I hate you advertisements. And so how can this situation continue? Therefore, I say advertising, as we know, is dead. Because if consumer is vehemently hating, paying money to keep you out, or installing advertising blockers, that marketers have to realize that this is something which is not sustainable. Hence my statement. Um, well, I think that we're speaking a very similar language here. Um, there's another thing that I thought might be you might be interested in. Maybe you've seen this or maybe you haven't, but there's the Reuters Institute publishes a survey every year where they interview publishers, the major publishers, people that work at them. And this year, one of the big takeaways was that the publishers for the first time were more focused on getting revenue from readers than from advertising. There you go. So, well, I'm curious though, as, a, as somebody who obviously, you, you know, you have to work with publishers and media outlets in order to get your message out there in some way. Are there examples that, you know, stand out to you as a better consumer experience for you know, a brand marketing itself with a media outlet or you know, uh, with a publisher of some kind, that's a better consumer experience than, than the kind of advertising you're, you're describing. So I would say from a consumer's perspective, there are three things. Number one, an advertisement should not be an interruption. It should not be an annoyance. See, brands are trying very hard to really define and design a beautiful, seamless, frictionless experience for their consumers. The publishers should also focus on that. If their whole content is being constantly sprinkled with these interruptions, they should know that their product is going to suffer. That's number one. Number two, there has to be relevance. And now, how many times have I received ads that I don't even have anything to do with the product category that they're advertising about? I don't care. So it's not only wasted money for them, but it is a further annoyance to me. You are not only interrupt my, interrupting my experience, but you are telling me something I don't even want to hear about and I don't care anything about. So why would you want to do, you know, do this to me as a consumer? That's number two. Number three... As a brand, you're anxious to get in front of consumers and tell your story and inspire the consumer to make a choice in favor of your brand. But the problem is it all doesn't have to be through that media at any given point in time. Consumer's journey has got, uh, you know, there are various steps and the whole time frame is there. You need to find out which are the right moments, as Fraction Gamble calls it, the right moments of truth which are the right moments of truth that truly matter? Do you want to talk about a product when I'm watching some beautiful ad or do you want to buy it when I'm actually looking for the product, searching for the product? That's one simple thing. You know, why do you think Amazon and the likes of, uh, you know, these online e-tailers have really become into gigantic advertising revenue generators, essentially for this kind of a reason? So the key thing is marketers need to understand at which part of the life cycle or the product journey or the purchase journey cycle that consumers have to be told about their story. So I would say these are the three primary things that come to my mind as to how things have to change. 
Those are great examples. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in that same that same conversation, you know, that I referenced earlier was the emphasis on experiential marketing in ad-free environments. But obviously, I, nobody saw this coming where we were all going to be socially distant. You know, um, how how do you think that has changed in terms of, or what is your your vision for a future where we're more focused on the consumer experience and yet we're not in person together with the consumer like we used to be. Yeah, so one clarification I would like to start with is that the experience design is not only for the physical environment of the consumer, whether they are in a digital environment or whether they're using their product in a bathroom or in their wardrobe, it has to be seamless, frictionless, it has to be a delight. All right, curating experiences at various events, for example, is one important part of it, no doubt. So it is. So first, I would say, therefore, experiences are across the entire points of interaction between an individual and the brand. So second, at Mastercard in 2013, when I started looking at the kind of craziness in the advertising ecosystem. I said, we need to really pivot to something else, some other way of connecting with consumers. Now, till then, we used to have this great priceless campaign, which we still have, one of the longest, uh, uh, long-standing uh, campaigns that we have very successful. So that particular campaign uh, was purely an advertising campaign, right? It would observe moments in people's lives that are truly priceless and then highlight them and celebrate those moments. So like the father and son going to a baseball match and say the price of baseball ticket, uh, so many dollars, the price of soda, so many candy, so much. And the price uh, that uh, at the time spent with your 11-year-old son, priceless for everything else that is MasterCard. Brilliant, ad, brilliant. One of the best I have ever seen. Now, the thing is, when you keep playing it repeatedly again and again and again for something like 15 years, there is a little bit of a routine uh, that sort of it gets into. As much as it seeped into the culture, it stops doing anything different. It doesn't cut through in a very different way. The impact we felt could be far, far bigger if you move priceless from being just an advertising platform and make it into a holistic marketing platform, which means priceless is infused into all the four P's of marketing if you follow Philip Kotler's model. So there is pricelessness in your product, in the way you distribute the product, in the way you promote the product, and the way the pricing is actually set. So that's something which we said is what we have to do. The second thing is for MasterCard, priceless was the soul of our brand. And we were highlighting it through advertisements. We said, how can we do it much better? And that was through experiences. Not talk about priceless, but actually make people experience priceless. Instead of observing priceless moments, we enable priceless memories. So that's how we transition. And that started working very well for us uh, the moment we went into. So we pivoted from traditional media pretty significantly into the sponsorships space. And once we were in the sponsorship space, there was no looking back. And then our brand started marching forward very uh, fast. And today we are a top 10 brand in the world. 
as measured by brand Z, for example, which few years back we were at number 87 or 89. So we're gaining ground pretty strongly. And if you look at uh, aspects like our studies like brand asset valuator, which are a third party done uh, study, we don't do it. Uh, they actually can show that MasterCard's uh, growth in strength of the brand is much, much faster than many of our competitors. So that's all doing pretty good for us. Now, the thing is, when the world collapses the way it had during COVID and all our experiential marketing was based on physical experiences, what does it do to us? So this is where, Paul, I sometimes keep uh, you know, thanking our stars uh, as to the preparedness in an unintending way. What I mean by that is about three years back, I asked my chief financial officer to assume the role of a uh, of head of risk management for marketing. It's a newly created function within marketing. So I said, marketing has many risks. You have cybersecurity risk, you have reputational risk, you have financial risk, you have data privacy risk. There are so many risks that you deal with. Should we not be focusing on risks by itself, somebody really dedicated to it? I thought it was important enough and significant enough that we needed to have. So my CFO became my uh, chief risk officer, so to speak. And then she started looking at all the risks and putting together strategies. If this happens, what will we do? Contingency plans or crisis management plans for every single one of the risks. And every quarter, she does what's called a heat map of the risks. So you know what is the likelihood of a risk materializing? And if it does materialize, what is the impact it can actually create, the negative impact, right? So we started putting all that and then started all the building blocks for uh, the risk management and the training of our people and so on. And then what happens? Corona, coronavirus comes. When coronavirus comes, sure, we did not foresee coronavirus, but thankfully we had all the building blocks. So we quickly pushed them into action and we did not miss a beat. So for example, we said, should physical experiences be interrupted, we will immediately pivot to digital experiences. So we said, okay, let's go to digital. So today people are all at home. How can we offer digital experiences? So normally we say, okay, you've got a cooking class with a chef where you go to the chef's kitchen and then you learn there, hands-on, etc. So we said, can we bring the chef into your home? So we started actually doing that. Or you go to uh, and have backstage experiences with various artists and sports people. Now, can the sports person come to your home and have a one-on-one -on -one chat, just like you and I are on the Zoom call? So a lot of experiences which were happening outside your home, we started bring them, bringing them in. And today, at any point in time, we have got more than 500 such experiences in any given country. And that is extremely uh, powerful. And we learned a few lessons too. We never realized that digital was going to be so powerful as it turned out to be. The scalability is instant on the one hand. Uh, the economics are much better on the other hand. And you can involve a lot many more of your consumers, not just consumers themselves, but their families, their children. And it's a whole experience for the entire family. So I'm delighted. So this is how we have pivoted uh, uh, in this COVID situation. It's, I mean, it's a fantastic example. It feels very much like Red Bull back in the, the days where they were becoming a publisher, um, you know, pivoting away from just doing events where you had 100 skateboarders live at an event to doing events where you spent five years planning on a guy jumping out of outer space and had the entire internet watching. You know. True, true. Um, 
So one of the things you just mentioned, you know, bringing the uh, in-person experiences into people's homes, um, you know, countries all around the world. And one of the things that stood out to us recently was your Priceless Wave, um, which is a program that MasterCard just ran on TikTok. Um, would you be willing to share a little bit about that program? Because I feel like you're really a great example of uh, what you were just describing. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting, right? So typically one of the phenomena that you observe in various live events in stadiums is where people are rising up in that wave. So around the stadium you go, people are rising one section, then next section and next section. And that sort of builds a lot of energy, involvement and engagement. So we said, how would it look if we were to do it digitally? Can we ask actually people to do a, you know, digitally they're sort of, you know, they photograph themselves and they're sort of, you know, jumping. And we said, can we create the, uh, you know, biggest wave and get it to Guinness Book of World Records? So we, we started thinking into very crazy kind of ways. And what we had a little bit of an apprehension at the start was whether it's only the kids who will be really doing something like this or will the real consumers, not just the teenagers and this and all, will they also jump in? It was heartening for us to see that everyone is a kid at heart. They all want to indulge. And even if they might seem silly in that, in a, in a, in a stadium, you're there with everyone, you're jumping. So it's okay, you're part of the group. But here at family, you're just jumping, you know, it might look very odd. But no, it wasn't. And uh, it, it, it really worked very, very well for us. And it gave us some very nice learnings in terms of the kind of things that we could do and bring people together and connect them in some virtual way. Uh, and uh, they can see the result of that action immediately. So they get a feedback and there is an instant gratification. So the whole process we found was pretty fascinating. Uh, to be perfectly frank, I was a little skeptical at the start. But I said, hmm, okay, this is good. This works. Why not? So let's make it happen and make other things also in the same vein uh, that we will replicate across various events and concerts and so on. I got to say, you're giving me a touch of nostalgia from first your, your story about the father and son baseball game. And now, you know, the parents getting involved in the wave. Because for me, whenever I went to sporting events growing up, my four foot 11 mother was the one always trying to start the wave which at the time was embarrassing and now is, you know, really, I remember fondly, but I love the way that you, you opened by saying what you were looking for was something that creates energy, involvement and engagement in person. And then you recreated that online and that the learning was that everyone's a kid at heart. That's, that's one of those things, I guess, that was obvious, but not apparent. That's a, a beautiful learning. So I'm also interested, I want to pick back up on your chief risk officer and that was your CFO. Um, you also are responsible for communications and PR um, at MasterCard. And in some ways, um, depending on the organization, right, communications can oftentimes be seen as brand protection, um, although in some cases it's also seen as brand promotion. And I'm just curious, you know, how you sort of um, rationalize those two things and, and the role you see for communications in this. So for me, actually, uh, marketing and communications uh, are in the same continuum. Uh, in some ways, probably they are two sides of the same coin. So when I look at the uh, entire mandate or mission for marketing and communications as an integrated function, 
it is threefold first it is to build and protect your brand second it is to help drive the business and number 3 to create platforms that will give you a sustainable competitive advantage believe it or not today communications is involved in all these three pillars for us communications and marketing they are together we have integrated them few years back many other companies have done it and i think those companies who have really seen the benefit uh you know the uh, there have been some early adopters and they have found it very valuable so we did it probably four five years back and uh, the results are very evident right on the one hand when you look at the standard typical publicity public relations kind of thing public relations is all about brand reputation management but what i also see is that when communications and marketing both come together every single launch for example has got a marketing element and there has there's a pr element when the two of them are working in tandem they become like literally a force multiplier between the two of them for the business uh likewise when you do competitive advantage and i'll give you one simple example we found out uh you know over the years that when you take a stance on a slightly sensitive societal issue which is not necessarily mainstream in an authentic and consistent fashion and stick with that commitment it can make a huge difference to the perception of that brand and of that company now few years back we said you know lgbtqe is a very important uh, aspect that still has got some kind of a taboo people don't talk about it or they don't are they are plain uh, negative and uh, uh, opposed and so on and so forth and people of that community are harassed and so on so we said we'll take a stance on this and we started being a part of the pride uh, parade and all that every year uh, around the world uh, you know uh, we're starting with manhattan the last year we hit upon an idea which i feel very proud of so we said when a transgender person goes to a shop typically the person say the individual's name was lucas now lucas became now lucy but hasn't yet changed the name because the changing the name itself officially legally is a huge issue but when this person goes to the shop the shopkeeper says give me your card to pay okay the person looks of one gender the name suggests another gender and then they get suspicious looks uh, and they feel that you know they maybe this person is uh, uh, you know has stolen this card or fraud or whatever so we went through this journey and we said we can actually solve this very simply even without the legal change of the name put the desired name of that individual on the card put the legal name in the back in fine print so you are taking care of the law and you are giving a pragmatic solution to this individual it seems like a very small thing but for an lgbt for a transgender person this is a humongous change and they say my god this is something which is absolutely stunning and uh, we called it the true name card and we depicted the real people who are going through this kind of a situation and showed the whole thing uh the entire launch was not done by marketing it was done by communications coms handled it a 
to Z. And we got terrific visibility. And so it's not all about marketing has to have the original thoughts and innovation and communications will execute it. It can be anywhere. You know, that's why when you put all these things together, it becomes like a crowdsourcing. Somebody somewhere in the organization has a great idea, you run with it. And in this case, we didn't even have big marketing budgets, right? So comps was actually most effective and the entire initiative was driven by them. I mean, what an amazing example of brand purpose authentically, you know, something you could actually improve upon. Um, It's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. Um, One of the things that stood out to me recently was, by the way, you're a very quotable guy. You're all over the place with great quotes. But one of them (laughs) was um, that a lot of marketers uh, for right now, this is not the time for brands to sell. This is the time for brands to serve. And it feels very much like what you just shared was an anecdote that exemplifies that. I wonder if maybe you could add a little more color to that, um, you know, that mantra, serving versus selling. Yeah. See, I would say that while the responsibility of marketing is to drive the business, they should not lose context. So what happens is during a crisis, the clients and the consumers, they are vulnerable. When somebody is vulnerable, it is easy to exploit them. Okay, and it is easy to make them get scared of something and say, therefore buy my product. So put a fear in their heads and then sell your product, right? Now, and they do it, uh, the consumers, they buy it because they're feeling very vulnerable. Now, don't ever do that. So as a marketer, firstly, you have to be a good human being. You come and market it much later. Be a good human being, operate with ethics. Don't be exploitative. Don't be opportunistic, right? I'll give you one personal example. I wanted to buy an iPad stand because I'm doing a lot of these uh, uh, you know, meetings with my team members and I'm at events and all virtually. So I said I needed a stand for iPad, which keeps the iPad vertical. I went on to a website and the online, a reputed online store, and uh, it was $61. So I said, okay, not bad. Uh, no, it's a little expensive, I thought, but still I'll buy it. When I went to check out, they said shipping cost $211. Right? That was the exact expression I had. <laughs> Three and a half times the is it, price. Is it coming by product. drone? I No, it was coming by a rocket. <laughs> so it was so extraordinary. I said, wow. And then I didn't have too much of a choice, nor did I have too much of time. Normally, during regular times, they charge 25, anything about $25 was free shipping. Here I'm being charged three and a half times for a $61 product. Now I said, this is, it felt very uh, bad. I said, the moment I have an opportunity, I will move away from this retailer. I need to have a good option. Okay. And now already I have moved a significant part of my business to uh, other online retailers. The point is, you might gain short term on that one transaction with that kind of an opportunism, but then you lose the trust of the consumer. Increasingly in future, the trust between the consumer and the brand is critical. When everything looks like everything else, when the functionalities are all similar, when the value addition is all similar, when the prices are all similar, when everything is so not democratized and made like the sea of sameness, that which makes you stand apart is your brand and the trust in your brand. 
And that's easy to go. So my whole mantra is saying that, look, this is the time when you go to your customers, for example, our clients, say, hey, we are here for you. How are you doing? Can we do anything to help you? And if they ask for help, be sure to help them. Don't just pay lip service. You have to follow through with action and don't try to sell them anything. If on their own, if they want to ask something and buy from you, okay, go ahead. But don't try to push. This is not the time to push and sell. Uh, this is truly the time to serve. A moment of crisis is a moment of vulnerability. And a moment of vulnerability is the moment when you can become, when you can uh, uh, build trust. The, don't waste these trust building opportunities uh, in favor of short-sighted profits or short-term profits. It's both short-term and short-sighted. Well, that's, that's a great example. Um, and it's reminding me of what you refer to as the, I believe it's the decency quotient. Is that, is that also, is that the same topic here or, is, or am I bridging us into new territory? No, it's the it's, uh, same, but also uh, you know, much broader in the sense that, you know, the philosophy is normally people focus on IQ and EQ. You should be very intelligent and you should know how to deal with people. If you have these two, you are very successful. Now, what we are saying is it's not all about success defined in a particular way, saying that how fast you're rising in your career and so on, but also to see, are you getting there the right way? Are you being a decent human being or are you trampling over others to get to where you want to get? Are you being empathetic to people in need or are you completely blindsided by everything you are sharply focused on your business goals and running forward, ignoring everyone along the way, right? So what we're saying is, before you're a good marketer, you have to be a decent human being. That starts with treating your people well. You know, the, uh, the aspect of diversity and inclusion and all these things are now taking a much bigger uh, amount of uh, social media attention as it should, but we have been at it for a number of years. So what, like, you know, I myself, uh, you know, I'm not the stereotypical, mock, uh, you know, CMO for many companies, right? I feel very grateful that in spite of my strong Indian accent, in spite of my skin color, in spite of everything, I have, I'm here and I've been given the opportunity uh, to be the CMO of this fantastic company. I feel very grateful for that. So I can therefore understand if somebody is losing opportunities, in spite of having the capabilities, but they don't have some of the stereotypical characteristics. So what we are saying is everyone deserves a chance. And likewise, don't go to gouging, price gouging. Don't be exploitative. Uh, don't be opportunistic. So we just put some tenets for ourselves, saying that in the short term, it might be disadvantageous in some cases, but in the long term, it will be standing, we'll be standing on rock solid foundations. Well, and that's your point about trust is that it has to be built over a long period of time and Absolutely. it can be ruined very quickly. But so another thing that you've, um, you've, you've spoken about is, you know, sort of how marketers or rather business graduates of universities and grad schools 35 years ago really aspired to marketing roles and that maybe the marketing track has lost some of its allure. And today we have a whole lot of people that are looking for new opportunities, either within the marketing industry or for career changes, things like that. And you're a guy who has hired countless people, right? Directly in your organization, plus the agencies that work with you, the vendors you work with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so as you're thinking about people right now who are trying to make themselves marketable or trying to, you know, find a new opportunity for this new world uh, you know, of marketing that's going to you know, look different than it did um, pre-COVID. Any advice that you would give them for how they position themselves or better themselves to, you know, set themselves up for opportunity? Yeah. So I'll give you a couple of things in the context of marketing, but a couple of things which are not necessarily applicable only to marketing, but are equally applicable to other functions or other areas as well. I found throughout my career, nothing works better than networking. People have to network, okay? And networking is where you have informal access to the people who make decisions to get your name out there, to get your reputation built. I think that's very, very critical. So first I would say is network. And network is not only when you need a job, you start networking when you don't need a job, right? So that's the first thing. Second, uh, stay very current. So marketing industry in particular is evolving so rapidly and it is being impacted by so many technological changes, so many changes that are coming at our way. Uh, they have to upgrade themselves constantly. Otherwise, they'll get obsolete very quickly. Number three, today, the demands of marketers are far many. In the past, if you are a great uh, I'm a marketer, it meant that you understood the four Ps of marketing quite well. You had the sensibility, you had the you know, sensitivity to understand the nuances and so on. But today, you need to understand finance. You need to understand data. You need to understand PR. You need to understand technology. Now, you are a true general manager with an understanding of multiple functions. And at the same time, uh, you have to have deep expertise in marketing too. You need to be able to connect the dots between your company, between your marketing uh, initiatives and your business outcomes. It requires a deep understanding of the business on the one hand. And it also requires a deep understanding of how to do, for example, credible return on investment analysis, right? And measures and metrics become critical. So what I would say is that you have to be straddling multiple functions. Therefore, go take job rotations. Don't be a career marketer. I would say be in, go to sales, go into finance, go into production, go into products, whichever way it is. Move through multiple functions, number one. Number two, I would strongly feel that a person who has experience across multiple industries is able to better think outside of your own industry when he or she comes into your company. So I would say have multi-industry experience. And if you are somebody who is mobile, I would say get experience in other countries. Okay, and particularly today, uh, I can say it confidently that over the next 15, 20 years, the growth predominantly is going to come from outside of the United States. And you cannot miss out those opportunities if you have the possibility of moving, if mobility is not a constraint. So I would say people should equip themselves very strongly on, on all these. So multi-geography experience, multi-industry experience, multi-functional experience. Uh, and then that makes you a fine marketer who is a true general manager with a deep understanding of marketing. That's great advice all around. Thank you. Um, 
There's another topic that I think maybe we have touched on some of the pillars of, um, but I'm sure that you have more to say about, um, which I think would be really interesting to our listeners. It's this idea of sonic branding um, and that that's a way of sort of creating greater relevance um, with your audiences, if that maybe is how you would describe it. But perhaps rather than even attempting to put uh, a description to it, why don't I just uh, invite you to explain to people what this sonic branding concept is? Right. See, if you look at any brand, its simplest representation is in the form of a logo. So when I see a logo of MasterCard uh, on a billboard or in, in print medium, or I see it on television, I can look at it, look at the logo and say, huh, that's MasterCard. Now take a situation like a smart speaker. In a smart speaker, you have the entire interaction happening through the medium of sound. It's all voice. There is no visual real estate. When you don't have the visual real estate, how do you show your brand? So a representation of your brand in a sound format is Sonic Brand at its very simplest. And uh, you know we had spent a lot of time trying to understand what will be the differentiating and unique Sonic branding that we should actually go for. And it was a journey. It, more than, it was more than two years in preparation and intense research and interacting with the who is who in the world of music uh, and the area of neurology and the area of sound. Uh, you know, it, it was a fascinating journey. So what we concluded is that basically, you know, it is not just one set of sounds that will signify a brand. Like for example, Intel has got a mnemonic at the end of every ad. But that's just one sound that is there, not necessarily something which transcends across all situations and transcends across all customers the way you have to. And therefore, what we did was that we went into a very comprehensive brand architecture that had a multi multiplicity of layers. So layer number one, for example, was all about uh, having a melody a melody of about 30 seconds, which is on the one hand pleasant. Second, it is uh, very memorable. Third, it is hummable. Why hummable? Because that which you can hum will stick in your head much deeper. And then something which has got versatility to go across different countries and different cultures, it should feel very native, whichever part of the world you take your brand to or your sonic brand to. And also we said that this is something which uh, is adaptable to different situations. Whether you are at an opera or you are at an NFL game, it should, they're completely different, right? The mood, the tone, the tonality, the tenor, the energy, everything is different. Your brand has to be equally applicable there. So when I first gave the brief, my agency was pretty uh, stumped. They said, is it even possible to come up with something like this? And fast forward two years, they did manage to get it. So we had worked with some of the best musicologists and musicians and music composers, writers, we went all over the place. So finally we have got our sonic brand, which is a 30 second melody, which goes into all our ads, into our videos, into music on hold for our uh, people. If somebody calls MasterCard office, that's a music on hold, or it comes down as ringtones in people's phones, etc. So this is one, one layer. The second layer is a subset of this, which is three, uh, which is three seconds long, uh, 
which is the equivalent of a sonic signature. It is our sonic signature. It's a subset of the 30 seconds. So when you hear the three seconds, it triggers you in your the memory of the 30 seconds. So it reinforces it. So this is played at the end of every one of our ads and at various occasions where you are ending something. The last one is another layer, which is 1.3 seconds long sound, which is what we call acceptance sound. Each time you use your MasterCard, when the transaction goes through successfully, you get a sound of confirmation. That's 1.3 seconds long, which is derived from our sonic melody. So each one of these, they build upon each other. And we find that this is pretty fascinating and it's really working well. And already at this point, there are 49 million points of interaction around the world where our sonic melody is playing, sonic uh, acceptance sound is playing. Amazing. So in less than one and a half years. That's amazing. And I truly can't imagine a more intriguing um, place to end our conversation. This, this has been fascinating and I'm sure that our readers and listeners are really gonna enjoy this. Roger, so thank you very much. Um, and congratulations again on being named to Provoke Media's Top 100. Thank you very much, Paul. Really appreciate. And, uh, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure with speaking uh, with somebody who is as informed and as knowledgeable as you are. So thank you very much and uh, look forward to meeting you and uh, chatting again later. Thank you so much. All right. So much to absorb from that conversation. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Raja Rajamanar. Number one, hire a chief risk officer for your marketing cabinet. Of the many brands that faced downturns during COVID, MasterCard was one of the few who was able to thrive. Raja attributes this partially to the work of his chief risk manager. This position was created only a few years ago, and while it was originally created to monitor risks in security, brand reputation, and finance, its framework enabled MasterCard to immediately jump into action in the face of the COVID crisis because they had a team at the ready to craft solutions. When a crisis arises, most companies assume an all-hands-on-deck position, and they loop in key management to arrive at solutions. As effective as this may be sometimes, this approach collectively disrupts business as usual by pooling the collective brain power away from the day-to-day -day work and away from the responsibilities of some of your most crucial people, all of which can destabilize a company in and of itself. Establishing and nourishing a risk management position and team is critical for creating a culture of stability. Number two, use comms as a force multiplier. Raja is very enthusiastic when discussing the structure of his marketing team, specifically how thoroughly integrated communications is throughout the entire marketing function. This level of integration has been such a breakthrough that Raja refers to it as a force multiplier, whereby the comms function and the marketing function greatly increase each other's efficacy by quantum leaps when they're working in tandem as opposed to separately. This integration has allowed for a free-flowing supply of well-rounded ideas that have serious media legs. When MasterCard's comms team discovered that many transgender people faced painful suspicion amongst checkout tellers when they were using credit cards that had their outdated names on them, the team not only solved the problem, 
but executed a highly successful campaign that documented the struggle with a happy ending. The campaign was fully integrated between comms and advertising, which is what enabled it to be both creatively compelling and culturally relevant. This is what we call earned creative, where ideas are so good and have such media legs that they naturally spawn publicity in and of their own merit. This is some of the magic that you get when you properly integrate communications into your marketing functions. Marketing teams with a deeply rooted comms integration will be the secret weapon of tomorrow's most creative and relevant brands. Number three, use creative risks to learn more about your customers. With the FanWave concept, Raja and his team wanted to find a way to create an engaging virtual event that sports fans could participate in. So they came up with the idea of the world's largest FanWave, whereby consumers all over the world would record themselves performing a wave. The problem was the marketing leaders didn't know if adult customers would participate, but they did it anyway. In the end, the program was a smashing success. Over half a million people participated with over a billion videos viewed and a world record was set. As crucial as it is to turn to data and analytics to inform creative concepts and decisions, sometimes you simply have to test ideas out on the market directly. This allows you to uncover new insights about your customers that the data may or may not provide. In the case of MasterCard, what they discovered was that the majority of their customer base were kids at heart. A beautiful discovery indeed. Number four, raise your DQ, your decency quotient. Roger believes that IQ and EQ are important for success, but an ingredient that is often missing in many corporate cultures is DQ, the decency quotient. Roger elaborates on how there are many paths to success, but the most meaningful and sustainable paths are paved with ethically sound decisions and conduct. Raja further stipulates that being a good human being should be a precursor to being a good marketer, as the values of empathy and humanity are critical for effectively reaching and benefiting your target consumers. With this concept in mind, Raja has been very outspoken about how this time period is not the time for brands to sell, but the time for brands to serve. During uncertain times when consumers are nervous, it's easy to exploit their fear for short-term gain, but this approach ruins loyalty. Serving customers during difficult times in favor of short-term gains not only strengthens brand loyalty and profitability in the long term, but it's the right thing for brands to do. Anyway, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. And to learn more about us, check us out at LippyTaylor.com. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.